Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that serves as a hub of mental health support resources and self-help resources for people who are navigating herpes stigma. Uh, I want to apologize to my guest today. I'm doing this online now because we are starting this podcast 37 minutes after I originally said and then 17 minutes after I proposed a, a delay. Um, and this is all because of of it's two things i don't want to say the second day but i'm gonna say it anyway because we're we we can do this here so the first thing was yoga class usually with a few minutes left they say hey shavasana you can stay as long as you want but this teacher which i'm so grateful for love the class i love the studio i was there and i looked up at the clock like during shavasana and i couldn't tell if the hand was five minutes past or before class so i just like chilled and then when she ended class it was about 11 40 my time so i'm on pacific time it was 11 40 when it was supposed to end at 11 30. so i leave and i'm heading home and i'm i've got about 20 minutes till it's time to record and i always walk by this little market that has fried chicken this is the part i wanted to leave off because it's all stereotypical and shit. but i go i ask for three drumsticks three wings I don't look at the bag. I just see my bag there. I pay and I leave. I get home. I throw some rice in the microwave. I'm like, yeah, I'm about to eat this chicken. I open my bag and there's fucking French fries in there and three drumsticks. And I started to get frustrated because I paid for the wings and the drumsticks. I didn't pay for French fries. French fries are cheaper. So I run, I text you, and then I run back to the store and then they give me more wings. They give me wings and then they add a few more and apologize for the inconvenience and left me with the fries, which put me in a weird spot because I had brown rice and I'm trying to be healthy about my carb intake and all of that. But now I got these fries, so I fucked them fries up too while I was eating I was eating the chicken and the fries. But anyway, uh here we are. So I wanted to apologize because I hate when I inconvenienced and so I never want to inconvenience other people myself especially when volunteering their time to do something like this so I appreciate you working with me and giving me your time to be here and have the discussion that we're going to have I don't have it outlined or in any particular sort of framework but what I do want to be sure to lead with is that there are so many elements of your story especially as a man that are underrepresented on the podcast but i will say come up often in one-on-one conversations with men who are living with herpes and there tends to be a trend of I can't worry about this because I have so many other things that are more important to this, but this still kind of has a little bit of a hold over it. And in one of our conversations today, actually, what made me really think was about how you said we need opposing views. And I said something to you about like the feminine energy. We're going to go into that kind of shit. So this is going to be a very gendered episode, men, women. Okay. So prepare yourself, trigger warning for anybody who doesn't like that. So there is a very feminine like cry outcry for more men to be vocal in this space and i can say that as one of one two three men who have herpes who are open about it myself uh pickering fitness i believe on tiktok and then uh rich mancuso asking for a friend uh the author of that book who's advocating for vaccine research and um and trying to get petitions for people to get behind this so With that being said, our voices, like you and I speaking, you shared your experience, I shared mine, and there's been not necessarily like a combativeness of like, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, but it's been like 
enough of a challenging of perspective that makes us grow in our own range of perspective in terms of how we perceive this, how we talk about it, how we think about it. And for me, especially how I go out and speak uh, about this to other people, especially when they ask me questions that are around the complexities of how do men deal with this? Because I don't have a quantity of experiences to draw from, but I have very few high quality experiences to draw from and I don't have any generalizations to make there. So all of this said, the first question that I want to ask you to just initiate and lead the discussion really is just going to be um, where you are right now in this moment with your herpes diagnosis, and then we can go from there. As I'm studying, I don't know. Um, I've, in the first six months were very hard every single day. I was very, uh, very worried about. It. I thought about it all the time, and now I think I've come past I come some kind of, some kind of acceptance. Maybe my brain is rewired to know that my old self will never come back. I think it was some kind of loss thing, and I I think I kind of passed that. I remember I had a death. My my father died, death of my family, and uh, for the first six months I looked in cars, passing cars. You know, you think the guys will come back home, and um, I think I've got to that point where. I used to wake up every single morning until a few weeks ago, and I was like, assess my life before I woke, before I like fully woke up. Where am I? I just got divorced. I'm living in my office, you know. And what happened to uh? And and what's my future perspective? Prospects? Am I gonna partner up? Am I gonna get remarried? Am I gonna? I have herpes, which has no cure and is and is highly transmissible. And uh, I didn't want to get out of bed afterwards. So now I just, I came to better terms that I started drinking coffee also, which I was always very careful about substances. But I mean, I guess that it's something that works and like it's better than nothing. So the more I get up, we have some coffee, I stop to think about it. So I guess I'm, I'm at some kind of acceptance. Mm. But it's a, it's a long, it's a, it's a long, uh, little dull pain at all times. So I want to point something out. So you mentioned your father passing away. My condolences. You mentioned your divorce. You mentioned your herpes diagnosis and you mentioned sort of coping in a way of these four things. uh, Well, the fourth one being coping, that doesn't really uh, stand to what my question is. I don't want to ask you to give me like a rating or a scale necessarily, but I'm curious to know how much more impacted you are by herpes than your divorce or the death of your father or if there's even a connection there between how you feel and those things happening because that's a lot of stuff to happen in such a short you know i don't want to say well, short well, period my father died a couple years ago okay. and actually they're all connected they're all very connected happens to be but herpes is by far the worst by far by a long long stretch because father dying you know, I buried my father. It's a, it's a blessing instead of him burying me. You know what I'm saying? My father died and he had 10 kids and then we all buried him. So instead of being the other way around, I mean, it's going to happen eventually. I, I was listening to your last, last podcast and the, the girl was saying how like, how like the, uh, our bodies, we don't control our bodies and our minds. It all breaks down eventually. Right. So, I mean, of course I knew it was going to happen eventually. And uh, I'm glad, I guess I'm glad he died first, you know, but after he died, I was able to get divorced because my my life was kind of arranged in a way and i didn't want to let him down i've seen a lot of people get divorced after their parents die it took a couple of years but you know I, I was he was giving me a lot of support 
it, it was financial and also he was a very powerful person. So I had, if I needed something, I'd call him and it would be done. You know, we had, we had everything from hundreds of millions of dollars behind us and politicians and whatever. Like there was never anything that I couldn't get if I needed, um, access to anything. And, um, part of that was, you know, doing what he wanted was part of it. When he was dead, I started to become, I had to take care of myself. As soon as he died, his friends started telling me, Oh, I don't know. I'm too busy. I don't have time right now. My influence, I was very influential before and that was largely through him. And after he died, that kind of died. Um, didn't die all the way, but it died. So I was also able to see myself and I just started to, you know, I started to become more, uh, yeah, I get more freedom. And then I got, and then I got divorced finally. I wasn't able to before. I got less broke. So I made some money during COVID. I made some money. I was able to get divorced. Um, my marriage was never great. It happens to be. Some parts are great, but it should never happened. And then I thought that was finally in a position where I could maybe get divorced and have a happy life. She could have a happy life. Everyone would be happy. I'd go my way. She'd go her way. We'd stay friends. Um, and then six weeks later, I got herpes. So essentially... I was I was after the different things in life happened that let me be able to attain freedom and I finally did it. I'm almost forty years old. I was I got separated and six weeks later I got herpes. Before my divorce was finalized, I got herpes. So you know, that's what uh that's what happened. Okay. So the herpes is unfixable. I mean, that's the problem with it, is that everything else after divorce you could recover you could find someone else you could find yourself after a parent dies it's a natural it's a natural or it's a natural or events yeah there is a coming back from death but i buried him you know what i mean like i'm happy it happened in a certain way he didn't get old he got cancer he died he was 76 years old whatever it wasn't that bad it wasn't a tragedy it was a tragedy for me but um that's that's uh everything all the other stuff was kind of natural and kind of normal and and also had much better recourse Okay, uh, I want to thank you for sharing that. That is a very um, specific, like, I think that that's some of that I didn't know, because what I'm hearing in that is you essentially had so much power and control, and herpes represents a loss of control, because you can't control who gets it, who doesn't get it, whether or not you have outbreaks, whether or not it's bothering you from a stigma perspective. Uh, is that an accurate statement? I guess so. I mean, I really don't, I mean, it could be, I don't think that from that perspective is possible. The, the way it really affects me is that because I lived a life which was completely controlled, everything in my life was arranged, you know what I mean? And I, I was, I was given a lot of stuff as long as I could, uh, as long as I followed the rules and I finally managed to get out of it. And then a minute later, and I spent 40 years, if you will, trying to trying to live my own dreams, if you will. And then the fi- I finally did it. My wife was happy, my ex-wife, you know what I mean? I, I'm, I'm gonna be happy, you know? she, she was happy for me to go, go out and get my own life, you know what I mean? And then I got smashed into nothingness afterwards where I can't really, because I just wanted to spend five years um, like like exploring to find what I really wanted, you know what I mean? And just to date around, I got married a virgin, you know, just to date a little bit and, you know, try, try some, some things in life and stuff. And, uh, so I got, I, I mean, I, I think you're, I think what you're saying is, is true. I don't look at those words, but I guess there's another way of looking at it. Yeah. Damn. And okay. You said you married a virgin. And if I remember correctly, you hadn't had sex until you got married, right? Right. Not I never even jerked off. That's what I was about to ask too. And excuse me, this 
is something that I want to go a little more into. Um, and you can feel free to share your religious upbringing, whatever you feel comfortable with sharing, because I think that that will resonate with people as well. But this part of your experience really does drive home a lot of how our experiences that are shared with me, at least, after people have had experiences with herpes, I guess it puts them in a position to sort of reflect in a way that things can be communicated through a conversation one-on-one with me that if done properly, I guess, if I follow the rules of how to do shit, then I can integrate our experiences into some sort of a pre-diagnosis sex education type program that intervenes and supports people, not just through how to minimize your risk of getting a sexually transmitted infection, but also being aware of what the reality is so that people have like a better mental health related response to something that may be less than desired or even approaching conversations so that they can fully obtain consent and decide, okay, here's how I want to move forward. So you not having masturbated at all, you not having had sex and her either, like the dialogue there, communication, I can't even imagine like what that would have looked like for two first timers having sex for the first time without any type of guidance. Did you watch porn at all? Not really. I'm, a, I'm four years old, so it wasn't very, I had to, you had to download, you had 56k modems, you know what I'm saying? It took a long time to download. I didn't really, not really. I didn't really know what a vagina looked like until I until, until I had sex, honestly. So wait, I didn't really know what sex was. I had ideas because I never because I never had an orgasm while I was awake. You know. Wait, 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 wait. All right, I get what you mean by you haven't had an orgasm while you're awake. That's that's a funny. That's funny. But um, so you, I can't even imagine. Like I didn't even think about that. I don't think I knew what. I mean, the the diagrams that they showed us. Did y'all not have any sort of? I had sex? a girlfriend actually. I mean, we just slept in the same bed because I was a rebel, if you will. Oh. But I never. But I never even. Uh, I used to make out a lot. I played with her tits a lot and stuff like that. But I never actually went into. Her. I never like I, I fingered her. I remember the first time I came back and I was like, I came back to my dorm room because that's where our life was. I had. I saw. I'm. I have red hair. I never part of my body. You know what I mean? I saw black hair and I cannot believe it really happened. I went to the bathroom. And I looked back. Back in those days, personal hygiene, the stuff didn't exist. We were in different, you know, we were different. We were a different world. You know what I'm saying? I had a my, my bush was longer than my dick, you know, and I see like a black hair in there. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Like, but uh, at the same time, like I never. We had this idea, like you sleep with a girl, you have to marry her. The first one you sleep with one is the first is one you gonna love forever. A lot of a lot. I was a uh, ultra orthodox Jewish fanatic. And uh, I believe this shit, you know what I mean? These guys who thought the earth was flat and had an age of, of, of 34 years old probably, you know, I believe these guys. And the truth is that, not only that, but I believe that the way, I believe in them and I believe in the, the culture that I was brought up with, uh, which is a certain perspective on it. So... Anyway, I forgot how this. Uh, I was just like, I, I went off over here. But no, I no, no. I, I wanted to know that information too because I didn't remember what you said. Uh, your upbringing was your. Is that a religion? I want to make sure to call it the right thing. You said ultra orthodox Jew or ultra unorthodox. What'd you say? Jewish. I was Jewish. Okay. But within Jews, there's a group uh, called ultra orthodox. Okay. So there's this. Uh, it's mostly these. Um, the groups that the two. There's two. Uh, the groups of them. You see them in Williamsburg, New York, a lot. The guys with the they still like Ukrainian lords from the 1700s. At that particular time, God said, 
let us keep this uh let us the current day nazis in ukraine war address just like that you know the people who persecuted jews let's just keep just like that and then there's the guys who i came from the lithuanian jews they call them from the yeshiva movement and they all wear these black hats like god said in 1950 that particular hat this is what i chose you know what i'm saying I created the world six thousand years ago, and then I put dinosaur bones into the ground with with petroleum. You know what I'm saying? Drive your cars from whatever. It makes no sense. But uh, this particular time, you know, right right now, this this hat is right. This American hat is right. So pretty much this brand of American ultra orthodoxy, which is why I have no education, but I have good English because we were not like the uh, the Hasidic guys who can't even hardly speak English. Um, I didn't grow up speaking Yiddish like that. I speak English, just uh. We had, it's a cult, but it's more, it's very similar to Mormonism, actually. And it's called in the, in the cult perspective. And it's actually very similar in thinking uh, to Islam. I, I hear like Muslims clerics speaking sometimes on YouTube and they sound just like the Jewish guys. If they would just change one or two words, you, you couldn't tell which one's which. Man. All right. I got to I want to talk to you. I want to ask you some questions about Kanye West when we get done. That I have to be private because that's a way side stepping conversation. <laughs> but, uh, I had a um, you and I had initiated a little bit of a conversation around what your dating life was like. Uh, well, your dating was pretty much always been having herpes, but I'm I want to know how has disclosing been for you? It's been bad. Talk to me. Um, I mean, I told people, and they just like lose interest very fast, disappear. And also, let me go so, ahead and make this clear: like you're you're an attractive man. Uh, very handsome, like symmetrical face, I guess, traditional attractive standards. I don't know if that if that's like something that if someone's listening here, like understand that that's where we're coming from with this conversation. So I don't want people thinking like, oh, well, he probably looks like a troll or anything like that. So go ahead and, and share like how you've disclosed. Or how yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll share a certain amount without going too far. OK, so I, I was married. And the things didn't, things, things, we were married in arranged marriage. So the way it works in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish world, if you don't believe it, in Lakewood, New Jersey, it is where these guys, the biggest yeshiva in America is there, which is the, the place where everyone studies. They go to, after they do the small ones, they go to Lakewood, they hang out there, and they get arranged marriage over there, pretty much. That's where most of the guys go, there's thousands of people there. Um, and there's like 10 wedding halls. If you want to see what a cult looks like, any, any wedding hall you go to, um, Monday, Sunday night through uh, Thursday night, the same time, it's the same people dress the same way, eating the same food, the same schedule, the same music. I've bounced for five wedding halls sometimes, see, and they and they read a script under the wedding uh, under the uh, wedding canopy. There's no vows. They read this thing in Aramaic, which most people don't understand what it means. I'm a rabbinical student, so I know what it means. I was a rabbi, so uh, what it means is that the girl it's a contract that the girl is a virgin, as if they know, right? And the guy is going to support her and give her clothing. Uh, food and but he can't. He's a guy in the dormitory, literally. There because the way he control people's lives is keep them in the dorm and keep them separate from boys and f- from from girls. And they put them together anyway. So, point over here is that um, well, what was I answering? I just wanted to total tangent. Yeah, no, we were just talking about your disclosure process, but I think what you're giving me is like a little bit of background All right. on your. So, so are you talking about like how I look or whatever it is? So, you know, the, the, in the ultra orthodox world, they tell you. You're judged by how, what kind of match you're gonna get. So I always thought I was an ugly piece of shit, okay, until until I got married. And my wife was right into me. I dated her five times, like they all do. We five talking dates, and then three months later we got married. That's that's how you do it. At 22 and 20, 
So after like 10, 12 years, I was I was into her. I was good, but I wasn't sure about some things. But I decided to marry anyway because I was married not for love, but to build it. But to, for you know, love is not part of it in the ultra orthodox world. Like you're supposed to love the person afterwards. All right. Is that love? I want to I want to I want to pause what I initially asked and ask about that because that is a very I think it's a very hot topic right now, marrying for love or marrying marrying because it makes sense or resources. So give me tell me more about that. So until like the 1900s, uh, I think people married for, you know, because they needed people on the kids on the farm. But it was practical. Only rich people married for uh, for love. But nowadays we're all rich in America. So we marry for love in the Western world. You know, what I mean, we, we live for a long time. Whatever, I was in Beverly Hills and saw a guy eating, eating great food out of the garbage can. He was homeless. The guy was living an amazing life. He was literally, you know, that's considered a poor person in this country. So, um, you marry for for a certain purpose. I was lucky. I have a friend who lives in Lakewood, Jersey. He's also not religious like me. He was also coming from a big rabbinical family, very powerful. He gave up a lot. He was telling me he has a friend who's a doctor who treats, who treats uh, one of the big doctors, one of the three, four doctors there, because in the cult, people trust certain people. And he told him that. He prescribes a lot of uh, his most commonly prescribed medication is Viagra to these young people in their twenties because they're not really attracted to their wife. They're dating five times. They're only thinking about sex. Then they get married. They just don't like them, so uh, they get the Viagra. You know, what I mean, that's how they live their lives. Pause, real quick. So, so the men are not attracted to their wives, but what about the wives? Or did no one care? Like, does no one care if the women are attracted to their husbands or what? They care a certain amount. I mean, and it's supposedly more open now. I don't know. But when I was, they, they try to stop the internet. It's not a lot of information. It's not, you know, your ways always taught the stuff. Like, it's not that important. The looks aren't that important. It's, it's not that important. You'll, you'll fall in love afterwards. You date a couple times, 10 times, 10, 10 times. These are talking days. You want to talk about, go to the Brooklyn Marriott on, a, on any weeknight at like 7 o'clock at night, and you see, you'll see a bunch of, you'll see probably 10 ultra Orthodox couples doing what they call dating. Over there, if you don't believe me, and, and you know that's really that's one of the hot spots. They, they see them, you see them awkwardly sitting across each other on a couch and talking to each other. Um, it's like an interview. It is an interview. You don't really know anything about yourself. They, they're they're carefully curated matches. How do you know anything about yourself? You never were independent. You never made any money. If they wait till the girls are twenty seven or the guys are thirty, they will never get married like that because they they understand what getting themselves into. You know what I mean? Like the the, the Talmud says that that when you uh, every child is born with bread in his hand. So you assume when you get married that God's going to give you all this stuff. The problem is that it's, it's not sure if God exists. Herpes exists because that's a scientific thing. You know what I mean? Eventually you figured out that it's not gay people are causing the earthquakes. It's a, it's a tectonic plate moving, you know what I'm saying? So, But in your mind, when, you come from, when you're in a cult, you, you think these things. So, but the problem is that after, if you get exposed to the real world, you start to want, you know, you look out at a billboard you, you see people in love. You see beautiful people. You start to, you know, eventually going to come alive. It's not going to stick forever. So what happened was eventually, you know, I, I had an affair with a girl. My, my, me and my wife, we didn't really, ex-wife, whatever, wife at the time, we didn't really have personalities which went together. It was great for, we were opposites. Opposites attract, but they don't stay together. It was great for the kids. She's a great mom. I'm a fun guy. But she never went out anywhere she didn't like going places and i you know something's about her bother me and she didn't want to i'm a big, very aggressive guy i went for psychologists and doctors i did everything I could for myself always she doesn't need this stuff you know she's just not she's not into it whether she, she needs it or not it doesn't make a difference you know she's very happy with where she is in life um she's not a big thinker a big dreamer i mean I, i'm not this is just a personality type she's not a big philosopher you know she does her stuff and, and that's her that's her life she's happy so so 
where the women essentially brought up in a way that taught them this is how you raise a family, get a husband. And it, was that like a thing that was happening or was there just like no Internet, no outside influence? What you see is how things just are. Don't ask questions. If you Google Internet, Asifa, A-S-I-F-A, which means gathering in Hebrew, my brother-in-law and my, a very wealthy a billionaire cousin of mine got together once and they rented Shea Stadium and they made a massive protest against the Internet, okay? <laughs> so they, they definitely carefully curate what you think and having no, and no access to outside information is part of it. If you, you know, if you think for a second, I won't tell you about this book written by the CIA about how they... Uh, about how they caught and interrogated Saddam Hussein. So the way they did it was they, they, they took the guy, put the guy in an apartment, in a nice apartment, they closed the windows, and they had one, they found like a FBI agent, actually, who was, uh, who was Iraqi also, originally, and they had him like be Saddam's everything. He gave him the, the time of day, his food, and they, they blocked out the windows. So after like six months, Saddam completely bonded him. And then Saddam just told him everything. He didn't have to, they didn't touch him. They didn't put a finger on him. They didn't torture him. The CIA tortures, the FBI fucks the minds, you know? That's all he did. And, he, and then Saddam told him, you're like a son to me. So if you if you withhold all information from somebody and all love, and then the system provides everything, then you really have complete control over you. The internet might tell you that, you know what? You're Jewish, okay? You think you have, you think your God is the right one. You know, there's 99.9% of the world thinks that a different God is the right one. Maybe you're not right. Maybe the world is more than 6,000 years old. If you're considered, you know what I mean, that, that there's trees that have more rings, that have more 6,000 rings in them, you know? So uh, it doesn't mean, you know, you know so all that, that stuff all, is all uh, it all works together. But what happened to me is that eventually, I, there was this girl who I always really liked, and uh, I asked my, my wife at the time to go with me in something, to go with me somewhere. She never went with me anywhere, and she didn't have time to concert. She was, she was too busy wasn't important to her in other words and uh i facebook scroll and said do you want to go with me and she said uh yeah and she was actually a distant relative of mine and i wanted to see what happened in her life i wasn't planning a fucking around although i started to, i was starting to find myself i was starting to realize i was attractive and people were into me but i couldn't break that barrier but anyway um i went out to her in columbus and we ended up having an affair and it was amazing whatever but uh i felt i was i was madly in love with her i didn't say a word to my wife but then she broke off with me shortly afterwards and then uh i started crying all the time i couldn't for like two weeks I cried. Finally, I told my wife what happened. My wife was pissed. She said, if I, I never saw you cry before once. And when this girl breaks up, you start crying. You wouldn't cry over me, you're crying over her. So this is the problem with getting, with getting, uh, with getting married, you know, when you, know, when you expect to have love and let's say love comes somewhere else, you know, especially in this world where information comes in and you see that there's love out there and it's doable. It's a waste. We're not, we're so lucky not to live 500, 500 or a thousand years ago where very few people had, had opportunities. So after that, a couple years later, we, uh, we had a, we came to some kind of agreement. Like she stopped wearing a ring and you know, I never wore a ring cause in my world, no men never, never wore rings. And, um, it was like, don't, you know, don't bother. Don't tell me time, no sex education. And I had a couple little stuff and she was upset about it not that i was sleeping around per se but she was upset that um i, I liked these women more than i liked her and you know which which bothered her um but like was never part of the original thing like it was it was a mess so my point over here is that i had experience with sex before and before uh i before i got divorced divorce didn't happen from this although she wasn't happy with it but it was fine i'm a good dad i don't drink i don't smoke i'm you know i'm, I'm an honest guy i'm a businessman I, you know 
I was always invited to go to go go places with me. She, was, she wasn't interested. We had different personalities. Literally, we, we had nothing in common, almost nothing in common besides her sex, which is always great with her, happens to be. Um, so, we, I observed that before, that I, I, I had like a couple a couple flings, you know, and I was looking for love, but I couldn't get it because because I was married. I had a couple of flings, and these girls really liked me, and some of them, they were, they were upset that I was married to somebody else. They wanted to marry me. Um, and then, they didn't care if I was married so much. They care, but they were willing to overlook it, you know? Um, when I got herpes, I realized we tell, we tell a girl I have herpes, they just like, they get scared. You're in their denial. They tell you your fruit juices, you know, they have, they have any recently, some bullshit like that. Or they just, uh, it's frightening. You know, they just don't want anything to do with it. They just, um, I, I'm in dance. I'm a, I like Latin dance. I like, I got into like two years ago. They don't want to touch you, really touch you afterwards. They try to avoid you and uh, that, me. I mean, that's just been my experience. You know, there's Whitlow. There's, there's, there's stuff that's catchable. Even people, you know, are very close to me. Um, I have a, you know, a girl is still kind of close to me, but she, she's very careful how she touches me and stuff. You know, she'll hug me and stuff. She'll hug a lot, but she's very careful how to touch my skin. I see it. I wash my hands 10 times before, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, you, it's, you say, I want to be a leper. Well, we are. I guess, I guess I am a leper. I don't know. I mean, it's catchy. It's a thing. How's that feel so, to go from just now learning that you're attractive and then all of a sudden this being a barrier from you really getting to quote see how attractive you really are because now this is like a barrier to you validating that through moving forward with sexual partners or dates or in the dance community being able to experience that desire and touch so I knew I was attractive. Like as soon as I as soon as I got out, as soon as I got married, I realized I was attractive, which is weird. Even when I was engaged, right before, a week before my, my marriage, I saw girls start looking at me because I started feeling like a sexy person. My wife was more made me attractive. She was like, "Oh, you're so high. You're this, you're this, all that shit." And I never thought I thought myself as a loser. A guy's not going to uh, be able to get a match, you know? Because that's what that's how they control your mind. In the ultra orthodox Jewish world, if you can get a match or not, and where you rank in the match system is your whole is everything. And they're constantly using that, you know, that's, I can get a match if you do this, or you come late and get a match if you, you can get a worse match, a better match. So the, the girls who I, who I had to do it before, a lot of them were very glamorous girls. The first one who I met, a relative of mine was, a, you know, a, just a very, a very attractive woman, extremely. Um, these girls always aligns the guys with their hands out. I knew I could do it. That's the thing. And right after I got... When I was married, you know, I, I slept with very beautiful people. And then right after I got divorced, uh, I met this girl at a dance festival. And she was also, she was a model. She got $2,500 for modeling when I was with her. Uh, and um, she was a ballet dancer. And she was also, I thought she was like in her 30s. Once we actually met her, it turned out she was much, much younger than me. I, like, that's why I, I got, I kind of knew this stuff, but not really. Like, so I flew out to see her in San Francisco. I waited six weeks. I didn't sleep with her on the spot because I was kind of worried about it. But... We, um, you know, I, I didn't really shower afterwards because I'd flown out so far to be, to be there with her. I didn't want to go away. I came, you know, I came, I flew with her at a whim, 2 o'clock in the morning. I booked a flight, got on a plane, 5 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning, and then I left the next day. So, um, what happened is that I found my freedom, and like I was saying before, and then I knew I was attractive already, and then it just went to shit. You know, like, now I'm attractive until people know what I have, and then they just, they just don't really... And inside my head also, uh, I know this, so I feel kind of like a freak, you know, you know, because I know that once they know what's going on with me, they're not going to want to have anything to do with me. 
having had experiences like that, does that change the way you disclose or who you disclose to or whether or not you disclose? said that it made me think about several examples of people who completely lose that sense of identity that sense of self because of their herpes diagnosis you are fun period and you're fun before people find out you have herpes you are just fun period right that fun the context of it the dance community the uh whatever else it is that you're into in those spaces you are fun and that's it all right Now, where it becomes challenging is when that fun wants to shift from one environment to another. So if the environment is just dancing and now you want to shift it to the bedroom, it's not that I'm fun. Oh, and here I have herpes to offer you, because one of the things that I've learned through the survey that I've done is that. 70 something percent, I would I, I would look it up, but it'll take a while and I'll be dragging our conversation. But 70 something percent of people have had sex with partners who don't have herpes and have not, to their knowledge, passed it on to them. That says more than what when I Google herpes transmission rate says, which is like if you wear a condom every time, if you take the antivirals every time and you don't have an outbreak, then it reduces the chances to, let's say, one percent. Even that one percent, what does that mean? Does that mean one out of every hundred times we have sex, you're going to get it one out of every hundred strokes? you're going to get it. Skin exposures, you're going to get it. What does that mean? It doesn't tell me anything. And I think that there needs to be much more relevant research around this, because if I'm 
able to just ask the questions. And I'm asking these questions because they come up consistently from within the community of people who are living with herpes. If I'm able to come up with these questions and ask them and get answers by just asking, like, why can't we structure? Why isn't there much more of a sense of uh, urgency to get us this information? There is a need for it. There's an urgency for it. There is a demand for it. However, I will say I do notice this, that we're not vocal enough about it collectively as a community to get more attention here, to bring more attention here. I mean, I am, there's other social media people who are open about their herpes status and saying how things need to change, but like, who's doing anything? Like, I don't want to preach to the choir. This podcast gives me what I need to, while on one hand, I'm preaching to the choir, but I take this shit, put it in presentations, and I look for conferences to go to with healthcare professionals, sex educators, mental health professionals, therapists, and hopefully people who have money that want to throw that at some sort of research, whether that be better treatment, vaccine, cure, whatever. So um, that said, going back to the point that I was trying to make initially, I want to assure you that like your identity ought to not be super wrapped up into your herpes diagnosis. And you know this from just our conversations that we've had outside of here, but like you're a fun person, period. Right. You have herpes. Let's put a period there at the end of that. These things don't have to be mutually exclusive. Now, if you're a fun person who wants to have sex and be fun in terms of sex, now we can have a little bit of we can debate about that because now that becomes an issue, perhaps for someone that you're going to have sex with. But this may only be because of the shit information that's out there that they're exposed to. So that's that's all I wanted to say about that. in particular there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, sexiness there's a lot of body moving around it's a very sexy thing they say it's not but it is oh lap dance is so like such a fancy sport it's not true it's fucking around like crazy okay um that's number one I wish also I wish that fun and sex were more separate but they're not I am a fun guy but it's it goes together you know I used to have make out and have sex and do all kinds of public places just like kicks and parks and broad daylight behind a tree something like that you know that's part of as the apex of fun is, you know, and I don't know if that that free sex will ever happen again unless I uh, unless I have um, unless I have someone with the same condition as me. I also wanted to try some non-monogamy, but that's out. You know what I mean? Oh, I, I tell you, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Let me stop you right there. Okay, I don't usually like to go too much into my own experiences, but I'll tell you, I've gotten a lot more politically correct. I've had a lot more sexual partners since my herpes diagnosis and than I'd had before. Um, before my herpes diagnosis, like in college, I think in college I had sex with like six people in the four and a half years that I was there. But I also was somebody who liked relationships. I was always in a relationship. I didn't know anything different. After I got herpes, I didn't think I could have a relationship, let alone juggle multiple relationships or have any sort of casual sex. And that's not been the case. Herpes did hinder me from initiating any sort of relationships because in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, damn, I'm going to have to tell this girl I have herpes. When am I going to do that? How am I going to do that? How is she going to receive me? What is she going to tell her friends and everybody around me? How are they going to treat me? And I started to 
see that that was the only thing that was holding me back when I started to meet other people who also had herpes. And then it was like, well, wait, yeah, we got herpes, but we don't have much else going on here. Like, we're not compatible. We shouldn't be together. And it was the experiences there that made me decide, okay, it's not for me to put so much of a capital, uh, not a capital, for me to put so much of my, the quality of my attention and focus into worrying about herpes as something that either brings me with someone or that brings us together or keeps us apart, right? It became more important, am I attracted to you? Are you attracted to me? Because that's a big thing. Like, I don't think people ask that question enough. Like, yeah, I'm attracted to you, but are you really attracted to me? And over the years, through these conversations, I have learned from so many people who have various other things going on. Like you, you're a business owner. You run a business, right? That business is what gets the primary focus and attention of you to where herpes should be completely like super insignificant except for when it comes up. And for me, unfortunately, <laughs> herpes is my business, so it always comes up. But like outside of that, in dating, relationships, sex... I've recognized that what made me more attractive had not been my concern about herpes necessarily, but it was how I saw myself despite having herpes. So think about it like this. The less you have, the more it the more that when you receive, the more it means. So if I've got nothing and you give me something, it's like wow. Like when you keep a score sheet of zero, anything plus one of zero is going to be whatever that number is. So if you're viewing yourself like down here from having herpes, anything that you do that is going to boost your self-esteem at all is going to be amplified versus being up here and knowing you're attractive and everything and then having something knock you down and then you have to get to that point. So there's a much lower threshold I would say for someone who has herpes, who's like thinking, man, I got to date somebody who has herpes, whatever, whatever. But when you step away from that thought process, you instantly become more attractive when you are beginning to invest more into those things that you really are into, that you care about. And it's to the point where people just don't care. And speaking for myself and my own personal experiences, it's been how I talk about herpes as the most traumatic or one of the most traumatic things that have happened to me, at least in my adult life that I can recall, how I talk about that, what I've learned from it, the skills that I've developed, the communication that I've learned and the stuff that I've gone forward and educated myself about, that's what's been getting me uh, in more opportunities to have intimacy, sex, relationships, dating. Because there was a period where I avoided that. I was very much avoiding of it until I couldn't avoid it anymore. And I kind of like forced myself into a place of having to process what it meant for me. And I'll tell you here, the big thing for me that herpes represented uh, on the surface was my avoidance of rejection. I would avoid rejection at all costs. And when you avoid rejection, you're also avoiding conflict. You're a people pleaser. You're a nice person and you tend to get walked over. And that was that really sums up a lot of my relationships because I would end up in relationships with people who expressed that they just liked me first. I didn't like these people, really. There was nothing that stood out about them other than the fact that they just liked me and they made it known. So I can't get rejected if... I like you and I go, hey, I like you. Do you like me? You can't reject me if I never do that, right? 
that was my own self-rejection. Herpes was what kept me from initiating and pursuing any type of relationship. So now, yeah, do I still struggle with rejection? Absolutely. Do I still struggle with initiating less than I used to, but I'm seeing much more wins than losses, so to speak, as a result of me having this thing that is a vulnerable thing. It's an emotionally charged thing. And when I go to disclose my herpes status to people, it opens them up. Um, You listened to the last episode. uh, We talked about uh, with Nina and I, what we talked about was initiating our disclosure is an invitation for intimacy and emotional connection because we're sharing a very vulnerable bit of information about ourselves and offering a person like the opportunity to step into that space with us. And if they don't want to do that, cool. Especially with the way that uh, hookup culture is and it's designed to be um, distant from intimacy. Like we don't call people boyfriend, girlfriend anymore because that attaches us to them in a a way that we'd rather say friend with benefits. We'd rather call them a fuck buddy. We'd rather be bang bros, whatever we want to call it. We got all these different names that make us less than connected at an emotionally intimate level. So all of that said, just to say, you have an opportunity right here to weaponize your herpes diagnosis, herpes stigma, to be a tool for you to really connect with someone in the way that you want to connect with someone. And I had to learn that shit through all these podcast episodes, these interviews, these conversations, the one-on-ones I have with people, the shit that I can't share, these surveys, and most importantly, the way that I've talked to myself, because I had some very shit beliefs about myself, herpes aside, like with not really being attractive. But I mean, I, I work out and I'm constantly validated in that. It's just, it's always been a choice to, like you said, your wife, saw you and made you feel more attractive. I've been with partners who've seen me and made me feel less attractive. So walking out of any kind of relationship with that kind of influence from a partner, you'll go out into the world and look for that. And it's so easy for you to spot that, but it's difficult for you to find and spot cues from people who do think you are the opposite of what you've been programmed to believe. So for you coming out into the world, you know, my wife thought I was beautiful. Like she loved me. She thought I was attractive. Hell yeah. Everybody does. I would much rather have that and then be wrong a few times, but be right still than to go out here and I, I make myself right all the time about being less attractive or why someone won't date me. And I make these stories up all the fucking time in my head. Like, oh, that person isn't interested because they're wearing headphones or they're not making eye contact, whatever, whatever the excuse may be. However, at the end of the day, like there are, um, we got to stop rejecting ourselves. And I think that the way that we view our herpes diagnosis and the way that we communicate about it is essentially a form of self-rejection <sighs> that was very very long-winded i did not mean to cut this much into your shit i very much appreciate you you know letting me say that um Good piece. I like it. so with that being said though man like the disclosing when you're in communities is something that i don't think that i've spoken much about i don't know that too many people have presented me with 
this going well or successfully. I know you mentioned uh, perhaps when to get into non-monogamy. And I'll tell you, there are plenty of spaces and people out there who are thriving in non-monogamous relationships with people who do have herpes and don't have herpes, as people who do have herpes and don't have herpes. But what I found is that the sex positive community, the kink community, they are much more well-versed at having these conversations and they've had partners who have herpes. They understand how inevitable herpes is. So in vanilla environments, like going to a bar or more traditional uh, heterosexual monogamous type places, those spaces like STIs, STDs, because that's what they call them, are like the worst things that can happen. Like, yeah, we don't talk about those things because you should have just wore a condom. If you wear a condom, that's the end all be all to everything, right? That's the solution. We don't have to talk about sex at all as long as we wear a condom, right? No. When you go into these other spaces, there are people who are talking about testing. They're talking about relationship intentions and styles. They're talking about the kinds of sex that they're open to having. They're talking about consent. They're talking about their boundaries. And this is not in these, quote, vanilla spaces. These are in these sex positive environments that... If we can model the general population's sex education off of, the world would be a much better place, especially for people who might be navigating a herpes diagnosis, for people who are having mental health challenges, for people who are just outside of the box of norm that we're supposed to be in when we go into certain environments and settings. Because you mentioned being like a leper, like, mm, no, you stand out because you have this thing going on. But how do you carry yourself? Like you tell somebody, yeah, I got herpes. You know, it is what it is. Like if you got a problem, you, you ain't even got to say that. Like, do you have a problem with it? Or how do you feel about that? You ain't supposed to care what they feel about that. You know, going back to what I said earlier, there's a very man, woman dynamic, very much like manliness conversation. You know, to be masculine is to, hey, this is this is where I'm at. You coming or not? If you want to come, this is where I'll be at, right? Leading. And the dance community, you said Latin dances. Uh, I'm positive that there is a very much like traditional sense of embracing masculinity in that setting. So the feminine will follow what the masculine, how the masculine leads. So if you're leading with, yeah, I got herpes. All right. It's not a problem for anybody else. I don't assume like you're assuming positive. That That's one of the biggest things that I've learned is that you want to assume positive and let people tell you if they disagree or if, if it's going to be otherwise. So leading with the positive. Right. And you, you've read the game. I don't need to like tell you, you know, much more about that. But all of this shit applies because dating with herpes is just like dating. Right. So you might have herpes, but uh, someone may be, well, you're divorced, uh, have children. Um, there may be other things going on that people may view as, quote, baggage. But these are also things that if you if you're able to tell the story of the lessons that you've learned out of this, how you've struggled through it, how you survived, how you overcame it, um, those scars are like modern day war wounds, the emotional war wounds that you heal from that make you more attractive, right? So from the beginning of time, I think we've, it's probably out there somewhere, like women have liked men who have scars and battle wounds because they've won battles, right? 
this day that we live in, we ain't out here fighting animals and each other really anymore. So the fight is with the world. It's psychological, it's emotional, it's spiritual. So how are you wearing your wounds? How are you healing your wounds? Like herpes is a fairly new wound for you that as you go through it and you begin to heal that emotionally, when you can present that wound and it's healing, I think that that's going to be some shit where people are going to be like, wow, you know, I really respect you. Like, I don't want herpes, but I mean, if it, if that's the cost of me being with you and having this moment to share with you because I like you that much. All right. I'm willing. I'm down. And that's what I think that I'm met with on a consistent basis when I'm cautious with uh, not cautious, but when I'm presenting that type of uh, opportunity for partners to connect. So I see that for you. I see that in you. And I, I want to be able to. Beautiful philosophy. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, I want to thank all of my guests. I'm something positive for positive people because, I mean, that's what kind of got me here. And there's like 300 hours of content that's on the podcast alone. But I don't know. I'd probably say I'm like 10,000 hours plus in on herpes stigma and people's lived experiences to get to this point. So, you know, I hope that our conversation and our ongoing conversation too because i mean i'm not gonna stop talking to you after we record even though people ghost me after we record i got a few that's that's not for this podcast episode I, i'm not gonna go into that venting but yeah man I'm, I'm very interested to see how things shape out for you especially over time yes me too we should have, we should we should catch up again in a year or something like that, six months or whatever I, I think we will um because i wanted i was thinking about this earlier when you were talking i want to do like a part two to this podcast it doesn't have to be right away it can be after a little bit of time has passed but i very much um i'm appreciative of your time i thank you for sharing your story because i know you said you didn't feel like you really had much to contribute man and when you listen to this before i post it like you'll be like oh and you'll probably say, I wish I would have said, or I wish I would have talked more about dot, 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 because that happens all the time, too. Um, but with that said, I'm curious, is there something that you want to make sure that we cover or get to talk about before I take this break and let you go before we start talking about part two? I will say that Herbie's humbled me, which is a very good thing. And I wish that I could have got humbled by some other way. But then no, would you have been humbled? Would you have been humbled though? But would you have been humbled if it were something that did go away, for instance? Like let's say you got chlamydia. I don't think we learn lessons from chlamydia. We just go get treated. <laughs> no, I'm saying wish someone would tell me something. I mean, I've, we all know, everyone knows the stuff, you know what I mean? You, you know that you know what I mean? But I, I, I before I was like I was really riding high. You know I mean, I got free, I'm smart, I'm this, I'm that, I'm that. You know what I'm saying? Like, 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 as if everyone else is not. Herpes showing me I'm just the same piece of shit as everyone else. You know what? You know, you know, I'm Jewish. I grew up with this whole God's chosen bullshit. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, I realized that I'm God's chosen herpes child. You know what I'm saying? So, like, uh, I'm just like everyone else. It does make a difference. Um, and I like that very much. Uh, I wish that something else could have done to me, but I'm not going to take the negatives and not the positives. It definitely offered me some things, and that'd be crazy. I used to have this girl working for me who was a uh, previously I've been in a, what's it called a magazine uh, uh, one of these one of these big big uh, magazines Time magazine very very huh Time magazine New York Times no like Playboy like Playboy type the other oh. one oh Hustler no I remember in a minute but um she was very beautiful and it was extremely charming so she was telling me how like this guy offered this and this guy offered that and what she's you know what she's supposed to do. 
Um, and at the same time, like people were annoying her and harassed her all day, constantly. I saw her phone was a constant stream of stuff. So I told her, you can't, you'd be crazy to take the, uh, the good and to take the bad, not take the good. I mean, if you're hot and people give you free stuff, they're also going to annoy you. I mean, so free so take the free stuff. I mean, it's part of, it's part of the deal. So I feel the same way about herpes. Like I'm going to try to take everything good. It made me really appreciate my children more and appreciate that guy when I was 40 and not when I was 20, you know, and, uh, I was able to have, uh, I was talking to a guy, you know, I got, when I first got herpes and the herpes support from me, never had good sex. And he, you know, I had a lot of good sex with my wife for many, many years, you know, I, and I do a lot of stuff I want to do in life. And I just, I, it gave me some, it gave me some appreciation for, for stuff that I had. I had a friend who, uh, was killed recently in a plane crash. He was flying a plane and, uh, and it crashed. This is like this is like last week. This is when my, my depression really went away from herpes, by the way, because I was standing there burying him. His wife and kids are crying over there, and it's cold and raining outside, and the earth smells because it's in a cemetery. And um, and I realized that he was like a total squ- the squares of the square guys, you know, and um, and he's dead. And they're, they're and since he and they're, they're already making a legacy for him. He was this, he was that. I knew this guy my entire life, you know. I I, I more you know like so I realized that it's an opportunity to be alive and. I hope I could get some, you know, I, I hope I take as much positive from this as I can, even though, because the negatives I, I have, I have to deal with anyway. I mean, I can try and mitigate, listen to your advice and mitigate the negatives in my mind, but I'm going to try to, you know, take as much of the positive as I can and, and really, you know, go with it. That's what I'm talking about. Well, hey, man, you uh, <clears throat> you got me here like as a support resource. Um, I love the conversations that we have. I like how we're able to um, I'm able to get perspective from you and bring that onto this show. So, yeah, we'll stay connected. I'll send you this, let you review it and let me know if anything needs to be cut out. And then, yeah, we'll stay in touch about recording for a next episode. All right. Y'all hear the voice back. Um, I noticed that I didn't say a name because we tend to stay anonymous. I have absolutely no reason to say a person's name, especially if I'm only talking to that person. So, (laughs) yeah, Um, that concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, share, subscribe to this podcast. Please visit www.spfpp.org because I paid for a new website and it looks a lot better. I want to show it off. And also, it's easier for you to find the donate button and you can reach out to me, find out what Something Positive for Positive People is up to offering. Um, I'm finalizing a couple of other things, but I want to begin to have disclosure workshops exclusive to something positive for positive people. By the time this podcast comes out, um, I think I'll have finished all of the online workshops that, workshops that I'm doing uh, with other people. I want to host my own and I'm really asking that the community show up because these are also opportunities for people to connect and get to know each other and meet people in their area so that not only you feel less alone, but so that this can be something that is more normalized among ourselves so that we can see that there are other people who have herpes other than Courtney, right? Like I don't want for y'all to check out Courtney and only Courtney's podcast and be able to like see other people living with herpes. Someone pointed out to me, I was at dinner with uh, our podcast uh, guest, Nina, and then the other person that I interviewed who chose not to share their name. And we sat there and Nina pointed out, Nina was like, man, in all of this, this whole restaurant, like we would never have known each other if it wasn't for herpes. I was in New York City. I live in Portland, Oregon. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. My parent, my grandparents are from Alabama and Mississippi. I am not supposed to know these fucking people, but I do. And, you know, just like our 
our guest here said, you know, I'm not just going to take the negative. I'm going to also try and take the positive. And the positive is that I know a lot of fucking people. And one of the things that I wanted to do is travel. And I have people who offered to host me, who offered to meet up and who offer space so that we can do these social events and connect in community. So I want to capitalize on that. I want to utilize that for us so that we can begin to go through our own healing processes, whatever that may look like for us. So that's it for me ranting and all of that. (laughs) So uh, be on the lookout for the 2023 herpes survey. This is going to be much longer. So prepare yourself mentally, but it's going to provide a lot of useful information that is going to help when we disclose to partners. And it's going to be something that's consistent and by now credible, uh, given that something positive for positive people has 501c3 status. And this survey is going to be done alongside an intern that I had who put in more than 240 hours into this thing and it's going to be IRB approved through university. So much more legitimately than my, uh, much more legit than my Google form survey. All right. I'll see y'all next time. Thank you.